I was thinking a lot recently just about the, the dynamics of my oldest daughter now, you know, graduating high school and going off to college, and people keep asking me how I'm doing, and I'm, I'm not doing. I'm in denial. I'm just not. I'm not. Ask me in August, I, I, you know, I, maybe I'll, it'll hit me or something, but uh, in all honesty, I, I'm super confident in my daughter's established faith, and I, I can't say how much what that means for me, just to know that she knows what she believes, she has a, a firm foundation, a solid base of convictions, uh, but still, e- even knowing that, even having the, the, the best oldest daughter you could ever ask for, and I, I mean that, Morgan made Day and I feel like we were pros at parenting, we just didn't know she was actually a pro at being a firstborn, <laughs> And our other two taught us we weren't as good as we thought we were. And so, no, they're great too. But e- even if you've got the best of kids, how many of you know, like, it-, it feels like, you know, this moment, if you've been there where I'm at, you know, graduating high school, it kind of feels like we've just kind of, like, gotten through the gauntlet. You know, like, whew, okay, like, one down, we made it, all right, she's, she's doing good, she, you know, she's, she's still doing well. It, it- feels that way a little bit sometimes. And to be honest with you, the reality is simply this. I'm very aware, you're very aware. My kids, your kids, they're not growing up in the same America that we grew up in. I know that sounds like something old people say, but, you know, I'm older than I look. So it's not the same America. Things have changed, and they are changing rapidly. And, and that's been on my mind a lot lately. I don't know if it's because my daughter's graduating or because of what's happening in our society right now, but I'm just very, very aware of that reality as of late. And I got to be honest with you, if, if, I'm, if I'm being truthful, there's a part of me that makes me sad. When, when I see what's happening in our world, when I see the the things I'm sending my girls out the door to experience that I, I was so naive about, things that I didn't have to deal with, it makes me sad. And, and if I'm truthfully honest with you, and I should be, we're in church, sometimes it makes me angry. I don't know if I'm alone on that or if, you know, all the imperfect people came to the early service. Okay, good. Some of y'all are here too. Just make me nervous. But I, I, I get angry. I get frustrated with just the realities of, man, this... How did we get here? Why are we dealing with this? What is, why, you know, on and on. And, and as a pastor, the, the emotion that, that tends to surface often is, I'm tired. Like, I, Pastor Chris and I were having a conversation this last week about just some of the difficult situations that we deal with in the culture. And one of our young adults uh, came in. She was coming to work on some things. And uh, when Hannah came in, I said, oh, just come on in, and we were just continuing to talk for a few moments, and so she's just there listening now, and then her, she interjects, she said, wow, I'm glad I don't have your job. <laughs> she said, that's sticky, and I said, you know what, that's true, don't you feel that way when you try, you navigate into like hot cultural waters and difficult topics, it feels, it feels like a fly trap, you know, you just, you hear people at the water cooler talking, you're like, ah, I'm not that thirsty, you know, you just... Just kind of, sometimes you just want to avoid it because things are difficult. Sometimes I get frustrated. Sometimes I get sad. Sometimes I just I feel tired. I'm tired of dealing with it. I'm tired of, and, and I have to pray about it. And when I pray about it, I started really realizing that my frustration that I'm dealing with is not a frustration with lost people for not knowing their way. 
I'm not frustrated with unchristians acting unchristian. I'm not terribly disappointed in the fact that people that are not yet saved act like they're not yet saved. How many of you know dogs bark, ducks quack, sinners sin? It's, it's just what we do, okay? And so I, I'm not terribly upset. It's disappointing, no doubt. But my frustration is not with those people that don't know the way and don't go the way. My frustration is with the confusion in the church. My frustration is that as the world is going the way it's going, there is a, a biblical illiteracy that, that is just causing the church to go in the same direction. The reality is the distance that our society has fallen should be indicated by the difference between the world and the church. There should be a difference. It should look different. We should talk different. We should sound different. We should respond differently. And and the truth is, church, and I'm just kind of unburdening my heart for a moment here. The truth is that the more our society turns from God and from God's word, the more it is critical that we do two things. We need to stand firm, and we need to hold fast. In fact, I want you to see that. It's it's the words of Paul that I'm quoting in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. We're going to put this up on the screen here. This is exactly what Paul said to Christians in his generation. He said, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast. Now, I, I live in the same world you do. We don't really have much of a problem with standing firm on our opinions of things, do we? We don't have any problem holding fast to our preconceived ideas or our preferences. The the truth is, church, maybe you didn't know this, but I'm going to clarify, being stubborn is not a gift of the Spirit. (laughs) You know, just just being immovable, that's not a gift of the Spirit. And so there's, there's a purpose to the standing firm and the holding fast. And it's here in the text. You can see it on the screen. It says, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And so in other words, he's saying the thing that we need to be committed to, the thing that we need to not be moved from is the word of God. And can I just say that to us today? We need to be committed to, to stand firm, not to our, our, our political views or, or, or to our, our, our beliefs about whatever the, the cultural crisis flavor of the week is. We need to hold fast and stand firm on the authority of God's word. There's a scripture in 2 Timothy I want you to look at today. You can turn there in your Bible if you want to go with me. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and Paul, Paul says this. He says, but mark this. Now, the reason I said you might want to turn there is because some of you like to mark things in your Bible. Is that you? Raise your hand if you're, yeah. Some of you, you've got like this, I don't know, it's this conviction that this is the holy word of God. You don't want to desecrate it with a big pen. And so like, you don't want to highlight anything. You don't want, to, you don't want any wrinkles on the pages. I'm with you on that, but you don't want to write in anything. So you, you do you, but let me just tell you, Paul said, but mark this. I'm just saying, today might be your day to actually highlight a verse. It might be your first time to like put a little asterisk next to it, underline it. Paul said, I mean, everything I'm saying is the written word of God. This is the inspired truth. But hey, mark this. You're going to want to come back to this. He says, but mark this. There will be terrible times 
in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. Is anybody feeling encouraged yet today? Thank God for the word, right? You're like, oh, wow, okay, not done. Verse four, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul like just lays out this list and he says, hey, pay attention to this. In the last days, this is what people are gonna be like. And he starts going down the list of all of these things and as if that were not negative and discouraging enough, then he adds these words in verse five. Talking about those same people, he says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Hold the phone. He said, these people that have all of these, these characteristics, that have all of these attributes and habits and hangups, these are people that have a form of godliness. Can I tell you who has a form of godliness? The people that have a form of godliness are the people that we look at in the culture and we assume they're godly. They're the people that wear the, the Christian t-shirts, that have the Jesus fish on their car. They're the people that back out of their driveway on Sunday morning and go to the house of God. Now, I'm not saying everybody that comes to church fits that description, but he's saying the people in the last days, mark this, they're going to have a form of godliness, and yet they're going to do all of these things. And can I just remind you, Jesus, when he walked the earth, he gave his harshest criticisms to those who had a form of godliness. Those who on the outside, we would look at and say, they're religious. Those are godly people. But yet on the inside, they didn't have the spirit of Jesus at all. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 23. He said, you, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but yet the, the inside is filthy. He went on a little farther and he said, you, you're, like, you're like whitewashed sepulchers. You know, last, last weekend I was a part of a memorial service for Memorial Day and, and I see all the beautiful white stones and all the crosses and, and, and Jesus used that as an image and he said, that's what, you, that's what you religious people are like. On the outside you look clean and white, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. And Jesus was, his harshest criticisms were for those that Outwardly looked spirit-minded, but inwardly, they didn't have the Spirit of God in their life. I was thinking this week, something I, I heard that just kind of stopped me in my tracks. I hadn't really thought of it like this before, but of all the major world religions, Christianity is the only one that hasn't really stayed centralized in its original place. Like, think about, like, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, now, they're all over the world, but primarily they're, they're, they're still anchored in the same region where they started. But Christianity, on the other hand, Christianity started with some Jews in Jerusalem, and it expanded, it went to Rome, and then it, in like 300 years, by 300 AD, it became the epicenter of Rome, and then from there, it spread out all over Europe. So all of a sudden, the, the face of 
of Christianity was a white European face. And then they got on boats and they came across the ocean and America became the, the seed of the gospel. And, and we became the, the senders of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And for most all of our lives, America ha- has seemed like the, the epicenter of Christianity. But can I tell you, it's moved again. If you want to see where the Spirit of God is moving on the earth, you want to see where revival is breaking out, the face of Christianity is Latin America. The face of Christianity is Africa. The face of Christianity is Asia. And as I began to think about that, it, it reminded me of two things. Number one, and this ought to encourage you, the kingdom of God is still advancing. Amen? Jesus said, this gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth, to every nation, every people group, and then the end will come. So I want to encourage somebody today, don't believe the headlines, don't believe the news. The kingdom of God is advancing. But it reminds me of a second truth. And a hard reality to deal with, and that is that we are living in a post-Christian America. We really are. Maybe at one time we were a part of a society that that honored the word of God and it was built on Christian morals, but, but now we reject those morals as a nation. Now we disregard the commands of God as a nation. And we have to figure out how to deal with that. We have to deal with the fact that Though the kingdom of God is advancing, we're still here. And while revival is breaking out, we have to figure out how are we going to raise the next generation in a culture that is so contradictory to the authority of God's word, in a culture that has become militantly opposed to God's design. The Bible tells us, I said it before, I'm going to say it again, stand firm and hold fast. To the teachings that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Can I just speak to the church today? I want to challenge you to submit your life to the authority of the word of God. I mean, I know we could talk about a lot of things, but, but this, is really the, this is really the central issue. Regardless of the topic, we have to make a decision for ourselves In whatever generation, whatever nation, whatever people group you're a part of, we have to decide, is the the Bible, is the word of God the authority of my life, my faith, and my conduct? Or am I taking my cues from the culture? Can can we just pause right here in in this moment? And, And let's just ask God to speak to us from his word. Would you do that? Can we just bow our heads all over this room? Father, thank you that today... You have a word for your church. God, thank you that I'm looking out at a people who have come to receive a word from you. They didn't come to be entertained with music. They did not come today to hear my opinions. God, we believe in the authority of Scripture. We believe what Jesus said is true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will never pass away. So God, right now, we submit ourselves to the authority of your word in Jesus name and all God's people said amen amen doesn't it feel doesn't it feel strengthening sometimes to just do that to just re- remind ourselves that hey you you don't 
have to have it all figured out. You're not in charge. No, we, we are under authority. I'm going to give you five things today, maybe six, maybe three. We'll see how long this goes. But I've got six things about the Bible. And I, I, if you're a note taker, write these down. These are just some simple things that you need to understand about the Word of God. Number one, the Bible is inspired. It's inspired. The Scripture says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The idea of the scripture being inspired, it literally means it has the divine breath of God in it. So when we read the word of God, we're not just looking at black ink on a white page. We understand that that the Holy Spirit of God inspired the authors of the text. He, he gave them unction and direction to speak the very will of God. Now listen, they were not devoid of their own intellect or their own uh, experience or even their own opinion. Because when we read different authors, we read different vantage points. We read different styles. We read from different languages and cultures. And yet the Holy Spirit divinely inspired some 39 authors to write 66 books over a span of 1,400 years in three different languages, and yet the Word of God is one cohesive narrative of God's love to His people without contradiction. That's the Word of God. It is God-breathed and God-ordained. And, and Paul tells Timothy in that verse I just read in 2 Timothy 3.16 that there's a purpose for the inspiration of Scripture. And the purpose that the word of God is inspired is not just to give you good counsel. It's not just to give you good advice. There's breath on the page. And he says, it's to equip us to do every good work. Not just to fulfill a spiritual discipline. Not just to check the boxes on your read the Bible in a year program. But reading the word of God and having the word of God in your life equips us for everything that God has called us to do in this world, in this present age. There's a verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I love this verse because Paul describes the, the power and the effectiveness of the gospel. He says in verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians, For our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep Conviction. In other words, when, when you receive the word of God, it, it, you're not just receiving the words. There's something behind the words. It's, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. It brings deep conviction. Have you felt that before when you were reading the scripture and then all, all of a sudden like, like the word just comes alive? Like you're reading it and all of a sudden you're not reading about, it's, it's like talking to you. And all of a sudden you just, you know God's speaking to me in this moment. God is trying to get my attention. He's trying to say something. That's what's so amazing about the Word of God. When you work the Word, the Word works. It works in your heart. It works in your life. Uh, just a, a chapter later in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, Paul goes a little farther. He says this in verse 13. He says, and we also thank God continually because when you receive the Word of God, 
which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. God's word is inspired. And Paul says, you know, one of the reasons that we thank God for you is that when you heard the word, you didn't just take it as an opinion. Some people ask me sometimes, why do I give so many scriptures in my messages? Because when you leave this place, I don't want you to say anything about my opinion. I want you to receive the word of God as it actually is. You say, that was the word of God. You might not like my style. You might not like my delivery. But that was the word of God. And dealing with that is on a whole another level than dealing with a personality. The word of God is inspired. Secondly, the word of God is infallible. Infallible. That just means this. It's incapable of error. And if the word of God is incapable of error, that means it can be completely trusted. The word of God is trustworthy. I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some honesty in this room. Anybody ever gotten it wrong before? Yeah, yeah. Well, if you didn't raise your hand or nod at me, well, now you can because you just got the answer to that question wrong. We've all got it wrong before, right? We've all, blo- we've all thought we knew until we knew. Parenting feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? Just for giggles, I jumped on Google this week and typed in things I thought I knew were right. And like 137 things populated really quick. It was like 15 pages. You know, I was like, oh, wow. And so I just started looking down some of the lists. And I got to tell you, I was, I was a little frustrated. I started reading that list, and I realized people have lied to me. There's a lot of things that I thought were true, things that actually are false. Like one of the things that we all thought was true or I thought was true, if you drop a penny from the top of the Empire State Building, It could kill someone. But Mythbusters did an episode on this. And they said, no, actually, it won't penetrate the skin. Not going to kill anyone. Okay. Uh, I was told it was true that you can see the Great Wall of China from space. In fact, I'm pretty sure I even had a textbook in elementary school that, that said that and had a picture of the Great Wall of China. But NASA has confirmed the Great Wall of China, frequently billed as the only man-made object visible from space, can't actually be seen from space. I don't know. Take it up with NASA. Cracking your knuckles gives you arthritis. That's what I was told. Apparently, I was just annoying people, and they wanted me to stop popping my knuckles. Actually... The nitrogen bubbles bursting in our synovial fluid is what's causing the popping. You're not going to get arthritis, apparently. I was lied to. I I learned that Walt Disney was actually not cryogenetically frozen. Somebody told me he was, and I believed him. But I found out he was cremated in Glendale, California. How many have ever just been told something that was fallible? This week, the the hot button issue was Dr. Fauci's emails, you know, circulating, right? And people are like, oh, oh, and every, 
all the debate about what's true and what's not true and what we were told and what we weren't told. And how many of you know next week it'll be something else? Something else is going to be found fallible. I mean, we talk about the vaccines, and that's been a big topic. And depending on where you stand on the issue, you know, the, the, the popular statement that I keep hearing people say is, trust the science. Trust the science. But then when you want to have a conversation about the issue of abortion and life in the womb, then people quickly say, it's not about science. It's about women's rights. But I just read an article last week about female college athletes up in Maine who are losing scholarship and money opportunities because they're losing competitions to physically stronger transgender male athletes competing in their categories. But when you bring that issue up, they say, it's not about women's rights, it's about equal rights. And I want to say, for who? <laughs> Trust the science. And so the, the thing just keeps going in a vicious cycle. And wouldn't it be awesome if, if there was somewhere just this infallible truth that never changed, that we could always go back to the source and know that it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Wouldn't it be good news to have good news? Wouldn't it be great if we just knew? And church, I want to tell you, we have a reliable source. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We have a reliable source. The word of God is infallible. And, and when you say this is the truth, I know that sounds like a narrower path than we might want it to be sometimes. But Jesus said that's exactly what it is. In Matthew 7, he said, narrow is the way that you should go. Because broad is the path that leads to destruction. And there's many that go that way and find it. I love the way that David talked about this path. In Psalm 16, David said, you make known to me the path of life. That's what it is. The truth is the path of life. And he said, you fill me with joy in your presence, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Can I tell you, church, God's word can be completely trusted. It's infallible. Peter said it like this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Think about the implications of that verse. God in his divine power gave us everything we need to live a godly life. I don't know if you've ever felt like you're coming up short, like I'm trying to do this thing, I'm trying to live for God, I'm trying to follow, you know, and be a good Christian, but I just don't feel like I've cracked the code. I don't feel like I have the resources. Maybe, maybe there's like a key that, that somebody else has that I don't have yet. This is the key. The divine power that we need to live a godly life. How do we get it? Through the knowledge of him. It's through the word of God. It's through the knowledge of him that we receive every resource we need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Church, I'm telling you today, God's word is perfect. It's inspired. It's infallible. And thirdly, it's inerrant. It's inerrant. That means it's the absolute truth. Now, I know we live in a world today that doesn't even believe you can have an absolute truth. 
We live in a world today that believes moral and spiritual absolutes are gone. That all truth is just relative. People don't really want to know the truth. What they're out to discover is my truth. Oh, just, just, just discover your truth. And now it's worse than just moral truth or spiritual truth. We've crossed new thresholds in our society of not even believing in physical absolutes anymore. As, as we're re-educating America, our children are being taught that they're not even absolutely male or absolutely female, but that their, their gender and their sexuality exist somewhere on a spectrum of male, female. Your gender might be one, your sexuality might be another, and on and on the confusion goes, and we don't even have an absolute truth about the most foundational thing. Who am I? What am I? Well, we don't really know, but we trust you'll figure that out. Can I tell you, God has spoken authoritatively about sexuality? God has spoken clearly, and I want to give you a verse of Scripture as an anchor point. Now listen, I'm not giving you this verse as a weapon to use against somebody else. This is to guard your heart. This is a defensive verse for the child of God. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7, here's what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, and look at this, making wise the simple. That's what the word of God does in your life. The word of God makes wise the simple. We get lost in all the intellectualism. And the person that seems to, to just have the, the best argument, the person that maybe can back it up with the most research or papers from colleges, those are the people we tend to listen to. But can I just encourage you, the word of God makes wise the simple. In fact, Paul kind of riffed on this same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, here's what he said to those believers that were also dealing with a really philosophical age where people just wanted to debate, debate intellectualism and, and theorize everything. Paul said this in verse 18. He said, do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. In other words, he was saying, look, if, if that's what you call wisdom, then you should want to be a fool. You ever felt that way? God, I, I, know, I know that's what the science is telling us today, but he said, if that's your idea of wisdom, because it doesn't line up with the word of God, you should pursue foolishness. Now, he's not anti-education or intellectualism. He's saying this is how foolish the wisdom of the world is compared to the knowledge of God. So he, he, he's speaking... In hyperbole here, he's saying, if that's wisdom, then you should be a fool. But be a fool for Jesus, because the, he goes on to say, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, it says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. Can I just encourage some believer today? Don't let somebody with a whole bunch of letters after their name talk you out of the truth that you know based on the authority of the Word of God. The Word of God makes wise the simple. And sometimes I, I fear that people that know the truth, why? Because the Word of God has the breath of God in it and it convicts our soul and it's inerrant. 
and it's infallible. And yet we start listening to people that throw, throw around $10 words and convince us that we don't know something and talk us out of a conviction that's based on the authority of God's unchanging truth. The word of God makes wise the simple. Jesus said it like this, John 8, 32. Jesus said, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the good news today. This is not just a Christian pep rally where we're like, yes, believe the Bible, believe the Bible. Listen, this is the application. This is where the rubber meets the road. The inerrancy of God's word can bring freedom in your life. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But let me help you to understand what this verse means. It's not saying that that truth is some caped crusader that's going to come flying in and rescue you. Truth sets us free. It's not what it's saying. And and it's not intended to just be a statement of, of be honest. You know, a lot of times parents do that, you know, with our kids. When when we call them in a lie, you know, we say, now listen, if you you lie, you're going to get in trouble. But if you'll tell the truth, the truth will set you free. And so we quote that verse like it's just a, a commission on honesty. But you know what? There are prisons that are filled with people that admitted the truth. (laughs) And they're incarcerated because of it. So it's not saying that, hey, justice will prevail. Truth sets us free in the end. And it's not saying just be honest because telling the truth always leads to freedom. He's actually saying a lot more than that. He's saying, I know the truth. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. But even that is only half of Jesus' statement. And that's where I think we miss it. We, we quote, the truth will set you free, but you got to back up to verse 31. Go to the verse right before it, John 8, 31, and it says this, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So he said this to the Jews who had believed him. And, and that's where I think a lot of people are today. Like, you, you believe. You believe in Jesus. You've accepted him as your savior. You're, you're trying to, to honor him with your life. You believe, but you don't feel free. You believe him, but there's an area of your life that still has bondage. There's an area of your life that is still a stronghold. There's more vice than virtue, and it's a battle you feel like you're losing, and you're going, what's the deal? Why haven't I cracked the code on Christianity? I believe, but I'm not free. So look closer at what Jesus said. There's a condition for freedom. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. You'll know it. He he didn't say you'll you'll go to a church that knows the truth or you'll, you'll agree with other people that speak the truth. He said, if you'll hold to to my teaching, you'll be my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Church, can I declare today, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the hope that we have, that, that no matter what you've been in or what you've been through, Knowing the truth. A lot of people are coming to church and because they've, they've tried and failed, they're coming looking for new revelation. They're going, tell me something I don't know, preacher. 
Like, tell me something new. Give me some insight. Give me some, just some practical guide that's going to, you know, give me a, a new spouse by Friday. Give me some practical guide that's going to get me out of debt in six quick steps. You know, give me something that's going to, you know, make my children obey me. And we, we go to the Word of God like it's some Christian version of a fortune cookie. Like, just, just give me something here today. And we're looking for new revelation. But what we need is application to those that believed they were my disciples. They held to my teaching, and they personally, intimately know the truth. And knowing the truth sets them free. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lists all kinds of sins that people need to be freed from. It's not an all-encompassing list, but it's a pretty good one. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That sounds like bad news. It's the truth, but that's a harsh reality and unless you read the next verse. And church, this is why we gather with a smile on our face on Sunday morning, no matter what Friday night looked like. We come into the house of God, and Paul gives this long list of all the things that disqualify you from grace, that disqualify you from a place in God's kingdom. And then he says in the next verse, verse 11, and that is what some of you were. I don't know what that does for you, but that makes me feel pretty good. This is past tense. Paul lists all of these all of these sins that would make a church lady blush. And then he goes, that's what you were. That's what I was. Now, it may not have specifically or explicitly defined my life, but I can promise you I've got a 1 Corinthians 6-9 list. There's things that I did that disqualified me from salvation and the kingdom of God. And Paul lists all these examples and then he's, it reminds the church. He's not writing to the lost. He's not saying, look at those sinful people out there. Look at those adulterers. Look at those fornicators. Look at those drunkards out there. They've got no place in the kingdom. That's not what he's doing. He's talking to the church. He's talking to people that believe. Maybe they're not free, but they believe. He's talking to people that are walking in freedom. He's talking to the leaders and the pastors of the church. And then he says, that's what some of you were. But something happened. Look at it. He said, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Church, this is the absolute truth that we celebrate today. That no matter what you've done, no matter what your past has been, or what your habits and your hangups are, the truth is you can come to Christ by faith and you can be washed. That means you're cleansed, that, that no matter how dark and set in the stains of your sinful life have been, they can be made clean in Jesus. He washes us whiter than snow, the prophet said. 
And not only does he wash you, but it says he sanctifies you. That's an incredible word. That means that not only are you forgiven for what you've done, but your life changes. You begin to walk in that purity. Your actual habits begin to change. Your thought process begin to change. The spirit that saves you sanctifies you. That's good news. I don't have to be who I used to be. I have a you once were in my story, not a I still am. Because God sanctifies us. And then he doesn't even stop there. He says, thirdly, he justifies you. What an incredible word. To be justified means that God doesn't see me as if I'd ever even sinned before. Because I'm justified, when he looks at me, he doesn't see the laundry list of my failures. He sees me perfect. He sees me as righteous. Does anybody beside me in the late service believe that's good news today? Amen. Paul says, that's what some of you were. That's the power of this word. It is an inspired word. God's breath is in it. It is an inerrant word. It can be completely trusted. It is an infallible word. And fourthly, it's an important word. It's an important word. And the reason I say it's important is because this is not just a history lesson. This is not life principles or Aesop's fables. This word speaks directly to your life and my life today. It's the most relevant book on the shelf in 2021. It always will be. But here's what you need to know about the Word of God. The Bible's not about you, but it is for you. See, a lot of people, they, they miss. They miss the Word of God because they, they just go to it looking for something for them. But the Bible is God's self-disclosing revelation of himself to man. When we read the Word of God, we learn who the person of God is. And it's important that we know that. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. How do we know his voice? We know his voice because we've spent time listening to it. When he speaks to us in his word, we learn what God is like. We learn to hear his voice. We learn to trust his judgments. The word of God is important in your life. Writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to the very separating of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The word of God, he says, judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. It speaks to where you are. It cuts right to the core of your decisions and your convictions. It's important. The fifth thing is this. The word of God is inspecting. In other words, when you read the word, the word reads you. You ever had that experience? As you're dissecting the text, all of a sudden it's like God just turns, the, turns the, the thing around and the word's dissecting you. And you're feeling conviction about things you've said or things you've done or decisions that you've made. And you're, man, nobody's in the room, but all of a sudden I feel like I'm being scolded. What's happening right now? I'm reading the word and the word is reading me. It's convicting me of sin and unrighteousness. James called it a mirror. He said the word of God is like a mirror that we look into. And when we look into the mirror of the word, we're not looking to see us, but what we see is perfection. We see Jesus. We see God's perfect plan for our lives. And we know where we're supposed to change. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back as we bring this service to an end. I want to give you a fifth or a sixth thing. And we're going to do this practically. The word is inspired. It means when you read the word, God is in the room. 
It's not just black ink on white pages. The Spirit of God is speaking today through the living and active Word of God. The Word is infallible. You can trust it. Take it to the bank. God's Word is infallible. It's inerrant. No no revisions, no corrections need to be made. It's absolute truth. And it makes wise the simple. It means if I just know the word, if I just stay with the word, I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. I'm just going to do what the word of God says because the word of God is the absolute truth of God. His word is important. That means it applies to my life today. I can't afford to just leave it on the shelf. I can't afford to just dismiss it. The word of, there's something I need to know today. There's something you're going to need to know today. God wants to speak to you about it in his word. It's important. And the word of God is inspecting. It, it, It convicts us. But finally, I want you to know the word of God is incarnate. The word incarnate just means in the flesh. And the Bible says about Jesus, the word became flesh in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. And so we're going to do something really practical to respond at the end of this service. We're going to receive communion together. And if you're a member of this church or even if you're a first time guest, you're welcome to receive communion with us. And so I want to encourage you right now to take the elements. We have them in a cup holder in the seat in front of you. You can peel back the clear cellophane layer on the top. There's a a white wafer in there. And then there's a second layer, a thicker plastic layer. You can peel that back in just a moment to get to the juice. But I want to share with you as you open those elements and just hold on to them for a moment. I want to share with you why this is so important. When we receive communion, the bread and and the juice, they represent the body and the blood of Jesus. It's a reminder for us that, that the Word became flesh. That what we believe in is not just philosophy. It's not just a culture that we're propagating. It's a Christ. It's a person. His name is Jesus. And can I just say to you that that none of the apostles who all but one died as martyrs, they didn't give their life because of their conviction about the three literal days of creation. They didn't give their life because of their eschatological views about the things to come in the end. They died because they saw Jesus die and rise from the dead. And they were like, okay, that's worth dying for. That's worth living for. So when we receive these emblems, we're we're celebrating the authority of the Word of God. We're celebrating the authority of the finished work of Christ on the cross. That when He died for my sins, it was enough to satisfy the wrath of God. And And I know that what He said is true because He rose from the dead. And when I eat this bread and drink this juice... In just a moment, what I'm saying, and I hope you'll say with me, is God, I receive the word. I receive the authority of the word, everything it stands for, everything it communicates. Because my whole salvation is predicated on Jesus, the living incarnate word of God. 
So, Father, today, I thank you for this word. Our Savior, Jesus, who came and gave his life in our place so that we could live and walk confidently in freedom in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. God, I pray today that the word would be real in us, that even as we eat these emblems, as we taste them, God, may we experience the word of God in new and in fresh ways. God, thank you today for sending your son Jesus to be our savior. As we receive this bread, Lord, we declare that. You are our savior and you are our Lord. And we celebrate the authority that you achieved at the cross through these emblems. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's receive the bread together. God, thank you for the blood of Jesus that declares us as righteous. Thank you that though your blood was spilt so many years ago, by the power of your blood, you wash us. We are clean. And we're sanctified. I'm not everything that I'm supposed to be, but God, I thank you that I'm not who I used to be. (laughs) I once was. But God, you're opening my eyes. You're sanctifying my life. You're making me more like Jesus. There's still power in the blood today, and we're thankful for it, God. Thank you that you justify us today. Because when you see us, Lord, you don't see our sins. You see the blood. Thank you, Lord, today for our salvation, for our cleansing. In Jesus' name, let's receive the cup together.